It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They might talk about humor, music, film, books, football, and box sets, exercise, and maybe even food, trivia and sport, politics and health, sometimes well-being too, on the life with Brian, on the life with Brian. Over the past six years, occasions such as these haven't really mattered to English football. Oh, we've missed them all right, but they've missed us too. 15,000 Manchester United fans with tickets have made their way over by train and boat and plane. And they're helping to provide a really splendid atmosphere here in the fine old stadium. And just listen to the noise as Manchester United and Barcelona take to the field. We've had wind, we've had rain here in Rotterdam today, but all that doesn't matter now. What matters is the final of the European Cup Winners' Cup. United really have been splendid ambassadors in pioneering the return of English clubs into Europe. But for the first time on their travels this season, they meet a team of genuine European pedigree in Barcelona. This really is the big time. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Life with Brian. Uh, I've got with me, of course, Brian McClare. Hello there, how are we? Alright, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, and of course, Matthew Christ is here as well. How are you, Matthew? Evening all, evening all. Very well, thank you. Very good. Uh, and I'm Mark, and I'm fine too. Uh, and later in the show, we're going to be joined by a guest, uh, and that's a journalist and editor of the Manchester United fanzine, United We Stand, Andy Mitten. Uh, well, why have we convened? Uh, well, 15th of May 1991, 30 years ago already, Manchester United and its army of fans took the short hop over the North Sea to the Dutch city of Rotterdam to face Spanish giants and champions that year, Barcelona, in the European Cup Winners' Cup final. It was an important night, not only for United and Alex Ferguson, of course, but for the whole of English football. 
This was the first season of our rehabilitation into European football after the five-year ban after the uh, Heysel Stadium disaster in 1985. And with the only other English side, Aston Villa, eliminated from the UEFA Cup early on, Manchester United were the country's standard bearers. Now, I'm not a Manchester United supporter, so Brian and Matthew, I sincerely hope you've both got uh, good memories, otherwise this is going to be an extremely short episode. Well, I'm sure the memories Brian's got are more important uh, than mine. Um, I mean, 30 years, Brian, where did all the time go? Have they been a good 30 years for you? Yeah, very good. As you can see, I'm wearing particularly well. Um, the 30 years, it was a, it was a particularly good um, short period of time for me in that um, my youngest child was born eight days before um, well, that wasn't the actual day. wasn't particularly great because it was the it was uh, I think I believe it was a bank holiday Monday, and uh, we had um, been at Highbury, and uh, we were given the uh, honour of of um, giving um, the Arsenal team a guard of honour as they wandered onto the pitch with their um, champions t-shirts. So that was the, uh, and then Liam decided that uh, he would wanted to be into the, the big wide world later on, early, well, early the next morning. Um, so I, it wasn't, uh, I missed it. That was only one I, I, I missed, uh, but we, we couldn't quite get back in, in time. You know, he was keen to get out there and uh, he was there when I, when I got, uh, got back early in the morning. So we lost the game as well. We lost. Yeah, I remember it well. Um, but then, obviously, what happened in Rotterdam probably capped, you know, a, crack, a great week, most memorable. Week. I, I mean, well, I mean, the whole, the, everything then from from that moment or from the preceding thing was was very much uh, geared towards um, a special event, and, and we knew it was a that it was that we knew that the manager was it was was. Treating it as a in a particular way because we went to uh, the Netherlands on the Monday, so you would normally travel to a European game the day before, but we went on the Monday, uh, and when we got to the hotel, it was a it was very small, very different from what we've been used to any time we were away games, and it uh, transpired that. United had um, booked out the hotel for the for the whole of the period for the for the Monday, Tuesday, and the Wednesday. So there was very much a, a, a very peaceful because it was in the in the suburbs somewhere. Uh, the I do recall them having a uh, the club or certainly the, someone decided it was a good idea to have a games room. So there was a, a room that had um, some uh, um, video games. I can't remember which video games they were in, in the cabinets like they would be in in uh, pubs. And I think there was a pool table as well. So there was a, there was a lot of, I think there was a lot of thought I'd get into uh, all the preparation with regards to running up to the, to the game on a Wednesday evening. Do you, do you think that was a conscious decision? I mean, it wasn't just coincidence. Do you think that a detail like that no, would have been, I think, been taken I, into consideration? No, I, 
I think they they, they were looked at. I think that they did the manager and his staff had, would have had um, several discussions about what the preparation would look like right up to the right up to kickoff. Uh, they would have had the. Uh, I don't know if that was a similar sort of scenario as to what Aberdeen did when they uh, when they won the the cup winners cup when when uh, Fergie and Archie Knox were were in charge. Um, Archie had only le- left a few weeks prior to the to the final, which uh, which was a bit of a was was a bit of a negative thought because he was. He was held in high regard, both as a as a coach and as a person. But you know that that's that sort of thing that happens in football. The so everybody, I think, of all the rest of the staff were involved in certainly the coaching staff were involved in the preparations through Monday, Tuesday, and um, and Wednesday. I mean, it was obviously United's first European final since winning the European Cup in in '68. At Wembley, the game you probably remember as a as a young kid. I mean, you obviously remember the the Celtic game the year before, so it's probably on your mind. Um, I believe Matt Busby was there with you in Rotterdam that night. I mean, were you aware aware of the huge significance of the match for the club and for the for the fans and for everyone? Yeah, well, well, I mean, we've been aware since. I mean, I really enjoyed some great European nights at Celtic Park, and then coming down to to. Um, England and uh, there was no European football um, I did I did uh, I did miss that and, and uh, I mean football in England and to my memory I said football was was treated very as I say it was poorly it was deserved because of several situations but it was it was like a pariah nobody seemed to be interested and then it was almost uh, you know, it was a national game where there's still the defences up. Um, there was there was just a lot of negativity, I think, attached to to football. And then for the for the UEFA then to degree or a, a, I can't remember was it was it a particular ban was it a certain length of time they were banned or yeah it was five years English club. well that was enough was it five yeah. years yeah and then Liverpool got a and, extra uh, ban. I think that, that you know it was winning the cup in nineteen ninety and then knowing that the following year, uh assuming that, that youth are stuck to their uh, to what their uh, stuck to their, their decision, uh, we were going to be competing in in the Cup Winners Cup. So that was something wonderful to look forward to. And uh you mean you I don't really remember we were listening to the draw, whether indeed the draw would be available live. But uh, when we got to, to our, uh, our, our first game, we uh, I don't even think uh, it was on the map or any readily available maps where we were going. So it was a bit right away we were going to start on an adventure, travelling to... Uh, well, I think I was joking at the time we were going to go to... Um, Deepest, darkest Transylvania. But you weren't far off. I mean, for anyone that doesn't know, um, United drew Pesci Munkas of uh, Hungary in the in what the now defunct Cup Winners' Cup. I mean, th- these are the days before any kind of group stages or seedings. I mean, it was basically everyone in a hat and uh, whoever came out first. So, um, yeah, it was a trip to Turkey and uh, sorry, Hungary in the first round. Um, 
And you, you've mentioned before about these fans that went dressed as uh, Santa Claus. I mean, again, as you're saying, I think there's the, what the, the, for me, a big part of the, the whole kind of thing was, was the fans traveling. Uh, and as I could appreciate the sacrifices, I mean, that they say that we, we flew, uh, and then we, we, there was a considerable bus trip to uh, to the game and a considerable bus trip after. And there was quite a lot of very vociferous Manchester United fans at the game. And, of course, you are, you are going to notice in the, the, uh, in the summertime that there are a number of supporters who have got the full Santa Claus outfits on, including... Beards like this one. Uh, there was, I couldn't say how many there were, but there was there was enough to say that there was a, whatever a group of Santas are called, there was a group, a gaggle of Santas, or whatever, of Santas there. And uh, I remember chatting to them after the game uh, and just being kind of well, impressed by how, what, how they'd managed to get there, where they'd left and what, what, what cities they had, and which countries they travelled through, modes of transport. I think the only mode of transport they hadn't um, they utilised was um, horses. So you were able to have some pretty good interaction with these, because this is before I, the day. After the game, we came out, it was very small ground, we came out, the game, and they, and they were there, we just yeah, chat away, and how things, uh, how, how did you get here, and very impressed by the, you're not rope men, but you're not uh, pretty hot in those. Yeah, sweltered, yeah, but they had, they'd made a decision that they were going to go to the game, um, found a, a way of getting there, and part of their fun was they were going, I don't know if they had them on the whole time, but they, from the minute they left home until the minute they got back, but uh, they had a good time, and it was a good result. I mean, did you get to explore many of these cities that, that you went to or were you cooped no. up in a... No, we didn't. I mean, as I say, we didn't even spend... We didn't even... We didn't stop there, I think. We stayed in there. Uh, we didn't stay there because I know we got the bus back from, from there, so there couldn't have been any... Um, well, I think part of the thing was that, that you'd want to get back, so you get back to somewhere near the airport, so you fly back the next day. So, obviously, we, we discussed... The different rounds we had with uh, Pesci Moncas, um, Wrexham, Wrexham. Um, Montpellier, Legia Warsaw. I mean, you you scored in every round leading up to the final. Was that something that you you were aware of as the as the run went on, or were you just taking it one step at a time? I mean, did you get to the final thinking I've scored in every round here and I want to want to keep that record going? Or was it? Yeah, yeah. You always want to keep. You always want to score. It's, there's nothing. I mean, nothing better than than scoring goals as we as we were. Chatting with um, how we feel that uh, the the football player of today is getting robbed that opportunity of 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 uh, celebration, not only celebrating with his teammates or internal celebration, celebrating his teammates, but celebrating with the with your fans. And you, you are aware when you score goals, and but it's more importantly you're winning games and getting through to the next round. 
but you, it's like anything you don't when you dream about being a football player that doesn't change when you actually get to, to finals it's a League Cup final, the FA Cup final, the FA or the Cup Winners Cup final. You always want to score. Well, I always wanted to score a goal because that was the, the biggest thrill for me. Um, second only to win an actual game, and I did have a chance to score um, a great pass from Gary Pallister, and uh, it was woeful really. But it did the ball did bobble, but it was a, a woeful effort really. But I'm, I'm, I'm claiming a bobble. I'm going for the bobble. But I think that, that uh, other players that uh, more used to that sort of surface might have uh, made a better connection. But uh, it didn't then. You're disappointed to do that because, as I say, it was a, as the ball comes through, you know that this this is a chance. You get it on target, there's a, there's a good chance if you had it with enough power. Um, though you, you could score a goal. Uh, but um, it's the ball. I'm not sure if the ball actually stayed in the stadium. That's a good ball by Pallister. Now McClare and a real chance for Manchester United. Oh, and he's knocked it over. That was a glorious opportunity. And Brian McClare, who scored in every round. What a good pass by Pallister. I'm afraid that's the sort of chance that you actually dream about getting in the first 10 minutes of a game. And, and Brian McClare is the type of man you would favour in that sort of position really made a pig's ear of the situation one has to say that Firstly Runcast, Wrexham Montpellier uh, in the lead up to the final uh, Legia Warsaw semi-final um, then we get to the final of course and from somebody that spent that day in Amsterdam, I'm sure you remember well it absolutely poured it down with rain, I'm sure there's a Scottish word for uh, for the day, that day in, in uh, Amsterdam, would it be Dreek or something like that, would it? Dreek, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it was even more. It was properly Dreek when we walked out onto the uh, to the pitch for the warm up, but not Dreek enough to to see and to hear the Manchester United fans. Of which, when you when you looked and looked around the ground, clearly were in the majority. Very much that gave uh, certainly for me. It was a big a big plus and a, a big buzz that so many people had managed to find a way of, of travelling from, uh, well, from, from all over the place, but mainly from UK to uh, to Holland and Rotterdam on that night. And there was a real, for me, a real frisson about the, about the crowd, particularly coming from from the Manchester United fans, and I, I, I think it gave us a, a certainly gave me a lift, and the other ones. But on the other way, you, you're hoping that the same kind of way. I mean, like Barcelona were used to having crowds then of 110,000. They had that, and they uh, they played in front of that in the in the home semi final against Juventus. So I think when you walk out to places where sometimes you the a neutral venue and the the numbers are against you and the atmosphere is against you could uh, possibly be a bit uh, as much as it was a positive thing for us I felt that it, they looked a wee bit overawed by it even although they were used to playing in front of 110,000 Now you were famously told by Alex Ferguson to man Mark Ronald Koeman that night as well as playing up front with, with Mark Hughes you you were told to stick with him as soon as Barcelona got the ball 
you know, you had to close him down. As soon as he got the ball, well, as soon as as soon as they got the ball, I was to he, he Fergie used to have a thing in most team talks where he would identify who he thought was a key player in the opposition, and a lot of the times he would say that if you fit, if you stop this person playing, stop them being influential in the game, you will win the game. Now that wasn't always down to one person. It was uh, usually whoever was closer to them, but in this particular case, it was uh, I was given. What was the first thing he said in his team talk? Which you're wondering if he actually says it because it doesn't. It's not usually the first thing someone says, or he's not usually usually leads the team out, gives you a few things. He came into the room, and he, he stood in front of the room, and he just pointed to me. He pointed. And then he said, if you do your fucking job tonight, we'll win the game. And I thought, well, and everybody was just kind of looking, and I was like, no pressure then. And then he went on to say, you stay close to Cumin when they've got the ball. Your job is to stop him playing. You do that, we'll win the game. But is that a rock? When we've got the ball, you can do whatever you want to do, but you make sure... He can't pass the ball any more than fucking ten yards. But is that a role that you you performed before, or would it just been landed on you that night? I mean, was it a bit of a shock? Or no, never. So it was completely no, completely thrown on you before one of the biggest games of your career. Yeah, well, at the time, yeah, one of, yeah, one of the biggest games, yeah. Which uh, at the time was a bit of a terrifying thought, but he clearly, uh, well, he he they had identified, and more particularly him how to win the game and the key part that he was saying the suggesting was that he makes and he did he did make them he was the he was the one that made made uh, Barcelona work. He was the one that dictated how they played. He was a wonderful um passer of the ball, particularly over a, a passing the ball over and through the lines uh for for a lot they had a lot of very quick players. Uh, and if you felt if you stop that, uh, curb that thing, that he'd have to pass the ball sideways, backwards, and um, he was he was never the most of mobile player, so he wasn't going to run past me and start to do that. Uh, and that and that was that was my role in it. And um, um, it's been it was an honour that he trusted me so much to to give me that, but it was uh, daunting at the time. I think it had a it had a double effect really because he he it seemed to me he played in front of the back four slightly, so when you were marking him when when the ball came back to United you tended to be in the areas where he was and as you said he wasn't particularly getting tight to you when the ball was coming back in their direction, so having watched the game you were you had a lot of room to do to to pass a move pass a move, so actually Ferguson's defensive tactic in that respect actually turned out to be a very um, effective, positive move from United, the link-up between, as I mean, you talked about the chance you had and Pallister's through ball to you, you ran from deep. And, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, being sycophantic here, but I thought you were the most effective attacking player on the field. Well, as, well, as he's saying, I think that was down to his analysis of, of Barcelona and Barcelona's players. Uh, and and knowing that he did, he'd already said that you just play when we've got the ball, we're going to play how we play, uh, and yeah, probably because of what he was saying that the the um, 
the players who would normally be looking to mark me, I was maybe a little bit deeper than than normal. So it was kind of in and in, in between, as you say. There's probably more in between their midfield and um, their defence when we got the ball. Uh, it was a it was a great night. It was a thoroughly enjoyable game. Uh, the weather, you know, the supporters, and then uh, getting goals at times we got goals. Um, were were pretty crucial, I think. We were all told to be as aggressive as we could within the rules. So I think that the, there's a, a few, um, more than a few, um, challenges that that were there to to um, let the Barcelona players know that, that they they were in a contest, they were, in a, they were going to be a fight, but. Uh, we knew that we could play as well. Not maybe not the same kind of football that, that they played and some of the players that they had were capable of. But we knew we were a, we were a decent unit. That uh, we were a we were a team that were prepared to uh, beat each other's shoulder when when uh, when we needed to be. And time and time again, I think you see probably more particularly with Ince, Robson, and Feeling some of the, the challenges that were, that were put in, but fair challenges, but but uh, potentially bone-shuddering. Yeah. I mean, talking of taking chances, one man who took his chances that night was um, obviously Mark Hughes with with two goals against his former club, although Steve Bruce might have had something to say about that at the time. But um... I, Well, yeah, I mean, it, it looked as if, because I was right there, that it was going to cross the line. Um, would I have touched it in... Mm, yeah, maybe you know, might have, I might have smashed it in the south, but, uh, but no, no, um, he can, uh, he... there was no rouse in the dressing room about it afterwards, were there? I mean, was he? No, there was no. There might have been a bit of banter at the time, you know. Well, yeah, th- there was a bit of a was it was over the line, wasn't it, from Brucey? And when I was, I was there. I was, would say, well, no, actually, it wasn't over the line. But I think it was probably going over the line and. And yet, face it, Sparky's a greedy bastard. That's it, you know. But I mean, he had a point to prove, obviously. I mean, and I remember at the time there was the big thing about how Mark Hughes wanted to prove a point to Barcelona. He'd had a miserable year or two there. He felt he didn't, he hadn't justified himself after a big move. Um, do you think that's how he saw it at the time, or do you think it, to him it was just another day at the office? He just wanted to score goals to win United a cup. No, I think there would have been. I think there would have been a little bit of a, a little bit more edge to Sparky in that particular game because. He had been there and it hadn't worked out the way that everybody envisaged it would. Um, but it's, it's just typical of being uh, that on the night that, that Sparky was in the right place at the right time. Great ahead of, say, from Bruce, probably going in, but Sparky was there to nudge over the line. And uh, the second one is a, is a great finish. Sparky is best. I was going to say that was typical Mark Hughes, wasn't it? I mean, every time you see that go. Uh, and, and, and the way that, you know, the way typical, a lot of people will go around goalkeepers and try and roll the ball towards the goal. Had he rolled the ball towards the goal, it would, it would have got cleared, I think, but because he's turned in, he's hit it with his usual 
beastly power uh, that was gave the defenders uh, no chance of, of recovery, you know. Yeah, and to put United in an apparently uh, comfortable 2 nothing lead, but that was until Ronald Koeman's 35-yard free kick. Watch Koeman. He has got a most explosive free kick. He's renowned for it throughout European football. And United, if he pierces this wall and gets it past Les Seeley there, not home and drive yet. Here's Koeman with the free kick. And it's in there! The nerves started jangling there, including a late Clayton Blackmore clearance off the line. I mean, were you the sort of player when, in the dying minutes of a game, did you feel the nerves jangling or were you just... Just keep into what you would... keep there is a bit of there is a bit of that because in any game you although I think that we were fairly we were quite I think we were quite dominant in lots of parts of the games, but with a team as good with the quality and the individual uh, brilliance of some of their players, you know that they were going to get some kind of chances. And the Although even from from the when he's taking the free kick, you're looking over and thinking that's not like a, a normal Ronald Koeman magnificent strike, you know. And then it's it's managed to to it's kind of it looked um, it didn't look like as I said. And then you you're quite surprised, I think, and I was surprised that I actually ended up in the back of the net the way that they, they you know they get a goal and they're they're all of a sudden lifted and we're on the we're then uh, defending. Um, for that for that period of the game, I think they got a goal chopped off as well. Yeah, yeah, there was a, an offside goal, and then Clayton obviously cleared one off the line. So, uh... and then again, you know, I would put that down to um, Clayton listening to exactly what he was told to do when it comes to um, where he's supposed to be when we're defending, and uh, the ball drops to him, and he, and, he, and he smashes it away, which is almost the last um, act of the. Or he smashes it far enough away for us, I think, to to retain possession and and see the last bit of the game out. Yeah, which obviously you did. And um, anyone that remembers that night and those famous scenes of uh, United going up to collect their first European trophy in what twenty three years, um, Brian Robson went up to collect the, the the cup and lift it to the huge United support uh, there in Rotterdam. But who was the first man up behind him? It was it was you. I mean, I always wondered, was that a conscious decision? You Were were you the one that wanted to be up next or was it just a case of whoever was there got the medal first? Well, I've, I've, I've always been kind of, um, well, hopefully self-deprecating when it comes to, to ego and glory. Uh, and in any other cup final, any other cup final I was involved in, I was probably the last person to go up, but I thought it'd been such a kind of amazing night uh, that I thought, no, oh, bugger this, I'm going to get in the photographs. <laughs> Which is obviously what you did, why we still remember it all these uh... <laughs> So I went, I just breezed up. I just was like, yeah, I just breezed up behind Robbo, yeah. Like, yeah. So that was the thought, yeah. That, that was your my, David, that was was your David May spot. moment, was it? That was my David May, yeah, yeah, David May, David May did a Brian McLean, yeah, that was my, you know, it was my conscious thing. I thought, yeah, I want to get now. I think tonight I fancy getting in the photographs. Well, here comes the big moment for Manchester United, and not least for their irrepressible captain, Brian Robson. Up he goes, 
the Cup Winners' Cup of 1991 belongs to Manchester United. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. As promised, we have with us United We Stand editor, journalist for 442, The Athletic, BBC, Sky and others, Andy Mitten. Andy, welcome and thanks for coming along to share your memories. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Firstly, we need to put United's 91 European Cup Winners' Cup triumph um, and following United into two separate contexts. Firstly, there was the pre and post-1990 FA Cup final win and how that acts as the marker for when things started changing at Old Trafford. Uh, and the second one, I suppose, is the possession, uh, the position of English football in general, uh, post-Hillsborough. Uh, and then, of course, the when England sort of fell back in love with football after Italia 90, um, although they were two very different defining events, of course, that shaped the game in this country. And, you know, go, go into what's United. What, what was your su- supporters' perspective in and around that cup run, um, in as I said, in those two situations, we started United. We stand in November '89 when Manchester United struggled to win any matches. But it wasn't about the form of the team; it was because I felt that football fans were being treated as second-class citizens. My own experience going to games was a poor one. I'd go to places like Nottingham Forest and. I'd pay four pounds to stand on a on a terrace where the view was terrible, where there was no cover. And and four pounds was a lot of money when you're getting two pounds twenty on your paper round. And there was talk of ID cards being introduced by the government. And football fans were routinely called hooligans. And you're quite right to mention Italian 90. I saw a huge change in the type of people getting into football after they saw Paul Gascoigne's tears. But we started United We Stand and straight away we were into this war of whether the manager should be sacked or not because a lot of Manchester United fans, they'd had enough. They didn't think that Sir Alex Ferguson was the man. And we started selling it. I mean, I was a kid, I was 15. We didn't know where it was going. But there's a few bumpy moments along the way. But gradually, Manchester United started getting better and better. And that 90 Cup win was really significant. It was a great buzz going to those games as a young fan and going to places like Bramall Lane. I didn't go to St. James's Park, which is probably a good thing because people who went there said it's one of the roughest places they've ever been that day in terms of being attacked by Newcastle fans. And then the, the finals at, at Wembley. And then leading on from that, you just felt that Manchester United were getting stronger. The team was improving. You could see that 
five players had been brought in in 89 and they took a little bit of time to settle. But Paul Ince was a brilliant player. Gary Pallister, um, Mal Donaghy, Mike Phelan, Danny Wallace, they had all had the, the, the moments. So I was a young lad in Manchester. It was, it was an exciting place to be with the, with the music around, uh, the football. I was going to away games for the first time. You're growing up, you're becoming an adult and it was just such a, an exciting time to be able to go to the games and just to buy tickets and turn up. You didn't have to plan five weeks in advance like you do now. Uh, well, you mentioned about going to away games. Um, if we look at the 1990-91 European Cup Winners' Cup, there were some very exotic foreign trips on that run to the final. As was always the case in those lesser European competitions, uh, there was Munkas, Montpellier, Warsaw, and of course the bright lights of Wrexham. What are the great memories of those away days for yourself or any other of the great stories that you've heard over time? I'd started going to every single game the following season. I was just going to domestic games in 1991, but I did go to Wrexham. Uh, it was only an hour from Manchester. I got an official members coach and I found myself behind two people on, on the coach who, who were like terrorist leaders in the Stratford end. I think they were called Terry and Chinny. And to me, I've never spoke a word to him in my life, but these were like godlike characters because they started the songs on the, the right side of the Stratford end. And suddenly, wow, I'm, I'm on the seat behind him on, on the way to Wrexham. And it's a huge game for Wrexham. And Wrexham had a really good ground given the status. It staged international matches. I just enjoyed it. I was just drinking in the whole thing of going to away games. Montpellier, I was determined to go and... I learned a lot about life, I think, because of that, about sayers and doers, because when the draw was made, everyone was like, yeah, we're going, we're all going, I'm great, okay, I saved up my money, like, let's go, let's book it, and all my mates pulled out, and I just thought, you know what, from now on, I'm going to judge who I think is a sayer and, and who is a doer, and Montpellier is probably the game I, I miss and regret missing more than any in all the time I followed Manchester United. Uh, Legia Warsaw was too exotic, um, seemed difficult to get to. Pesh, loads of my older friends went to Pesh. A lot of them dressed as Father Christmas in this sort of Hungarian university town. So by the following season, I was going to every single one. But that season, I was just, you know, I was still at school and it was difficult. But Rotterdam, I thought, I am not missing this. It's just I'm, I'm going. Whatever happens, I'm going. And I was determined to travel independently, which was very difficult because there was a lot of anxiety about English football fans at the time. It was the first season back in Europe. The reputation was not a good one. Uh, Rotterdam and the Dutch fans had a little bit of a reputation. And at first, the club said there's going to be no independent travellers. And I didn't want to go on the official coaches. Um, I wanted to go to Amsterdam and see the world and... I booked all my travel and with a company called UF Tours. But I was already doing United We Stand. So the company, you know, looking back, they probably wanted me on side. And one of the organisers said, come and meet me. And I remember the, the place where I had to go and meet them, Karaoke Business Park in Ancopes. And I'd never been to a business meeting in my life before because I was a child. And I told my mum, I'm going to a business meeting. <laughs> and they had visions of them saying to me, uh, well, they actually said, you know, you, you'll be going on an executive coach to Rotterdam. And I paid for this. It wasn't a freebie. But I thought, you know, because I did the fanzine, they're going to, I'm going to be sat 
on this coach downstairs with the table. I would be traveling to Holland in absolute luxury. So this business meeting was basically them telling me that, you know, thanks for paying us for the trip. It wasn't even a meeting. It was just me paying for them to, (laughs) paying them to go to Rotterdam and that the coach would be brilliant and everything would be fine. And, you know, when I, when I got to Piccadilly station at 4am to meet the coach the day before the game, having finally got a match ticket. And when I walked away from Old Trafford, clutching that green counterfoil, I reckon I've never buzzed off getting a match ticket as much in my life. It was a beautiful looking ticket. And it came after so much tension. Will we get tickets? Yes or no? Yes or no? As in, will independent travellers get tickets? So I had a ticket. Now I had my travel. I turned up at Piccadilly Station, four o'clock in the morning. And this coach turned up and I'm sure it was executive. And how did you get to? How did you get there? Did you did you have any sleep? Did you walk from home? How did you get to the how did you get to Piccadilly? What was the at that time it's too early to get public transport. I was living in in Urmston and we must have got a lift or a taxi. I went I went with my mate um, Tom from school. And when this coach pulled up to meet us, we just couldn't believe our eyes. It, it probably was executive when it was built just after the war, but by 1991, no, it didn't Any have a toilet. Any particular war, first, second? It didn't have a toilet, it didn't have a TV. And I saw the lads getting onto the bus and I thought, whoa, it was like every gangster in Manchester was getting on the bus and they were all they were all carrying these big slabs of beer and talking excitedly about what they were going to do in Amsterdam. And they weren't talking about visiting the Rembrandt Museum. <laughs> and we got near the back. We were the youngest on there by a mile. I was the only person wearing any colours. I thought I was cool wearing a retro United shirt from the 60s. There wasn't a dash of red on the whole coach. And when we got to Dover... I was told to hide my colours. And that was quite right because there was still uncertainty about whether we'd be, we'd be allowed to cross the channel or not. So I hid my colours. But Dover was a long, long way from Manchester. We, we'd only got to Keel services and the driver was being told to effing pull over now because the bladders were all full. So it, it was like a shabim on that bus smoking drinking the music was brilliant in 1991 loads of manchester tunes north side mondays rosie's carpets and i just sat there so out of my depth and we were looked after actually looking back we were really looked after the older lads a lot of them were, were salford lads a couple of lads from wivenshaw they, they, they kept an eye on us and I'm pleased that a few of them became good friends and still call them friends now, many, many years later. One big problem I had was uh, we weren't allowed to leave school to go to Rotterdam. And the headmaster got wind that people were considering it and basically said, if you go, you're getting suspended. So 13 people in my school got suspended because they went to Rotterdam and I I didn't because I lied I told him that I'd been invited by the mayor of Rotterdam 
because I did United We Stand to promote good relations with rival Barcelona fans. And these things happen all the time now. <laughs> I had a designer doing United We Stand. I, I knocked up a forged letter and presented it to the headmaster. Now, the reason I presented it to the headmaster was because they, they, they put me forward to be head boy at the school and I didn't want to be head boy. And he said to me, you, you've done well in the pupil vote. I came like 17th in the, the, every teacher and every pupil had a vote and the teachers didn't think I was head boy material, but the pupils did. And the headmaster took this letter saw that clearly I was man of the people rather than the <laughs> teachers and said, we're very proud of you, Andrew, representing Ermston, going to Rotterdam and shook my hand and wished me on my way onto that shitty bus. And <laughs> so I, I had three days in Amsterdam and everyone else got suspended. And then on the way home, um, got to Dover rang my mum and, and my mum was crying because I'd been made head boy to school. Um, <laughs> and mum, you know, my mum was, mum was single parent in so much that my parents had split. Money was absolutely tight. And a lot of the other people who'd been in position to be head boy, you know, were, they had campaigns behind them. They wore suits. I had a purple naff naff jumper. <laughs> yeah, my mum was crying her eyes out, nothing to do with the game. And uh, that, that phone call was from the docks in Dover. What was Naf Naf? Naf Naf was um, a French company which was very briefly popular in Manchester. I say Naf Naf jumper. It was actually a fake Naf Naf jumper. <laughs> because, <laughs> Even better. Because uh, I, I wore it to go to um, a concert in Leeds, June, 1st of June, 91. Happy Mondays, it was Ellen Road, The Farm, Northside, all these bands. And I remember really liking that, that fake jump that I'd bought because, because I went to the game, I knew the type of lads who maybe didn't always ring up customs and excise to declare their back forms on time. And, you know, these were grafters. So they were selling snide naff naff jumpers to people like me. <laughs> and shell suits and stuff like that so I, I was sort of unwillingly became connected with all of these type of people in Manchester and um, yeah I had to replace my red retro shirt with a purple fake nafna jumper yeah we used to call them fucker jumpers because every fucker had one <laughs> yeah well I was one of them unfortunately <laughs> um, what do you remember about the game then Andy because I, I watched it again um, on YouTube um, the other day, and um, I'm not a United fan, but I, I I don't remember United being as dominant. And I, you know, you look in the stadium as well, and it looked like United fans were outnumbering Barcelona fans, maybe two to one. Yeah, I think football fans can be very self-aggrandizing when it comes to away followings, and you never hear football fans talking down the numbers; they always talk it up and and. Football hooligans also do this. It was always, you know, we were 20 against 200 and fans do it. But I do think it is fair to say that two thirds of the stadium was comprised of Manchester United fans. Now, I've spoken to many Barca fans who were there, proper Barca fans, and they dispute that with me. 
and officially United got 21,400 tickets and sold them all. But those tickets tended to be right, but certainly the end, but all along the side, you could see Union flags. They were really popular then. They're not now at the match. You don't see Union Jacks at United games so much anymore. And it was definitely two thirds United. I remember the rain. I remember outside the ground. It was lagging it down. Amsterdam was full of United fans. They're all in all the cafes. People were getting stoned. They were getting drunk. And it was just brilliant to me as a young lad. It was so exciting. I remember our hotel, uh, which the company had booked us into. It didn't have five stars or, or four or, or three or two. It didn't even have a star. And, you know, I don't think it really should have been called a hotel. But it did have in a somebody's door. Somebody's house. <laughs> it was just like... What on earth is this? But we couldn't say anything because, you know, who were we? We were, we were children. And what did, what did you pay for that, Andy? When you went on your business trip and you agreed to to, to the price, or you know, or you haggle while you were haggling like that business trip of yours, that business meeting. Sorry, not the business trip. The business meeting you were you were haggling, weren't you? And you said, well, you know, the trip to Warsaw cost this. I think I should be paying that. And then what you did, so you you just. Had, you must have had a certain amount of money to go along with. You must have. Did you just say how much have you got, or, or was there a match? <laughs> <I think laughs> right, um, we'll take that. You know, I got to know this company because flyers were dished out around Old Trafford, and I remember 180 pounds all in for the three days. So that bought you return coach travel, ferry crossing, and two nights in an Amsterdam uh, under under a roof in Amsterdam. I can't remember haggling. I don't think I would have haggled. I think that's the price. You, you just paid it. Uh, I wouldn't say that the description accurately matched the reality, but, you know, it, it didn't feel like it mattered when when you turned up at, at Dover and you saw that there were other United fans there, the relief of, of getting through uh, the channel. Well, I say through, but the channel tunnel wasn't even open then. We went um, by ferry and just driving on a road in in Holland and, and Belgium, it was so exotic. I'd, I wasn't well-traveled then. I'd only ever been to uh, the places where working class families went in Spain for their one week holiday every two years. And so, so to be going to, wow, there's a sign for, for Brussels and arriving in Amsterdam. And I remember seeing a, a houseboat for the first time and it just seemed incredible that someone would live in a boat but well, obviously they do, and there's no issue with that. There wasn't an attempt by the uh, by your fellow travellers to um, to uh, board this particular vessel, was there? <laughs> they they arrived in Amsterdam full of enthusiasm and talk about how many um, ladies were going to introduce themselves to. Um, they were the opposite of us. They were not wet behind the ears. I was given £15 by a teacher at school and asked to buy a pornographic video for that teacher. I mean, you look at it now. What? Yeah, I mean, you look now and you feel it, it's so out of order. You were, you were 17. No yeah. wonder you got promoted to head boy. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> yeah, no wonder. <laughs> maybe no wonder. Maybe that was the reason I didn't get the teacher's vote because he was telling people, but maybe he thought, you know, 
I am the man who will be identified to, to buy him a video. And you know what? I bought it. Did you ever it. consider that it might have been a test? I, I think I just genuinely took it at, at, at face value. And um, he didn't even give me like a pound for buying it for him. And I didn't even watch it. We didn't even have a video. So was, so, this, in the, was this in the back of your head that this might have been um, uh, a potential disappointment for people when you when you spoke to your mum and told uh, when she told you that she was so proud of you to be head boy? And you, you said that, that not only that uh, you managed to get over and get back, certainly get back to England and had met many wonderful people along the way, but you were bringing a present back for one of your teachers. <laughs> my, my mother's an old Trafford girl and she's definitely not wet by the ears, but I definitely would not have told my mother that I'd brought a pornographic video for a teacher. I just um. know, knew what I was like <laughs> then. And I, I, I wouldn't have told her. Um, and anyway, she, she had her moment, you know, and it wasn't United. Uh, winning it was just like the, the, the three previous years had been a struggle because she'd separated from from my dad and and it was difficult it, it just was and for her um for other parents to be ringing it i think she was just just very proud of, of, of that at the, at the time yeah, of course that, because i was you know proud of my team with it's, these beautiful um, white kits in rotterdam and playing well against Barca, you know, against the, the, the Barca of Cruyff with with Laudrup. And I know Barca were missing a, f a few players. And you know more than I do, um, Brian, because you were on the pitch and I was singing your name. And I was really excited when you signed for United. And I put a lot of thought into, can this man from just outside Glasgow score 20 league goals, you know, in, in the summer of 87? That was a major issue in my life. It wasn't talking to girls or playing football it was working out if this man can do this and, and he did so your name was being sung and that season coming out of Platte Lane I think it was the October of 90 with the two goals against Howard Kendall's uh, Manchester City team you, you were a cool hero there were, there were 7,000 of us in that away end singing your name and it was good things were coming together because United finished 13th in 1990 that's not good enough but by 91 uh finished six I was at the game before Rotterdam Palace away got beat 3-0 and some people were going straight from London to Rotterdam some people were flying but I just thought planes were for rich people I really did until like budget airlines came along I just thought that's what rich people do never once thought that I could fly to Amsterdam and that's what took me into the clutches of UF tours well the thing that, that I made a comment to you Andy was that Certainly for me, when we walked out uh, into the well, you could, it was quite clear when the on the bus trip from the hotel because we were uh, we were in a small hotel in the outskirts of Amsterdam, but there was uh, we could see lots and lots of United activity on the way to the stadium. But when we came out, two things you mentioned: one was the weather, thought fantastic. This is this has got to suit us, and it was a little bit a bit like misty. I call it Kennedy. Got, as you can imagine, they've got lots of names for rain in Scotland, and it, and this kind of rain was called was Smith, you know, it kind of caused the haze. But for me, walking out of that tunnel was was clearly that the majority of people were Manchester United fans, and for me, for them to, you know, having going from those lads that who I I spent some time with after the game in in Munkie with their uh, Santa Claus outfits, 
to, to get to, to Rotterdam in the final had been a, a wonderful journey and a wonderful journey for everybody that had been been involved in that. But the buzz it gave you walking out that onto that football pitch with with that the majority of those fans there who who'd made that effort and uh, at considerable expense and risk, like yourself, was a, would give us a certainly me a, an absolutely incredible lift. And then I was also aware about the about the younger and I, and I was disappointed in the fact that younger people were denied or school age has been denied the opportunity to go to which may well well was a one-off in terms of um, of the terms of that competition United went on to have some other notable and potentially greater uh, victories in Europe but that one was was probably special for for a generation a generation that had missed out in that uh, and a number of of games and opportunities because of the ban. And it just seemed to be a, a fitting into the, to that that campaign, uh, and we felt confident without being arrogant about the game because we knew all about the Barcelona players, we knew how good they were, and uh, and who were the teams that they had they had uh, beat along the way. Uh, so, but we were given a clear plan, and the clear plan was to to make it as rough as possible for them and try and put them off there. The, the game that they the way they like to play and I certainly think that the the climate and the atmosphere made a, a huge difference to the to that victory. And I've asked people at Barcelona, I've asked players and fans about it, and it, it, it it's sort of the forgotten final in camp now. There there are lounges named after Basel where they won the the cup winners cup in '79. Um, obviously the European cups and Rotterdam barely features, but. I was quite humbled speaking to some Barca fans recently as I researched this. And just that one guy, Jordi, he was in Rotterdam. He spoke really well about the behaviour of the United fans. He ran through the whole team to me off the top of his head. And the only player who got wrong was Phil Phelan rather than Mike. Um, he just talked about his admiration for Manchester United. And it was just wonderful to listen to him. And he talked about how Mark Hughes had, had not been a success at Barca and that really disappointed him because he would excited when he joined and it wasn't Mark's fault because um, the, 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 the team was in transition and uh, he was played out of position and and I also spoke to the referee um, Bo Carlson in Sweden I spoke to him last week and people who were at the club and I think it is a, a major a sort of watershed in the life of a lot of United fans as you mentioned Brian because I was 17. Um, the music seems the best when you were 17. You know, it was the year that passed me driving test. You, you had your first girlfriend. It was just a wonderful time in, in life. And so many of my friends were there. And it seemed like Manchester was the centre of the musical world as well. And a lot of that music has stood the, the test of time. But just that one word, Rotterdam. And I've been at Rotterdam like five times since. And I've seen United play there again. And it's a great stadium. That's another thing. It's a proper football ground to keep. The atmosphere is brilliant yeah, when it's empty. Um, and I think Rotterdam, I know it's a port city, but there are similarities with, with, with Manchester. I know Paul Eaton sang about Rotterdam as well as Manchester. It's a working class city. It's a football city. It's not a fancy place where people go to. And there was very little beauty in Rotterdam in the rain and it just evokes such strong memories and winning it and uh, you were in the team did it give you confidence that you could go on and and win even bigger trophies it, it was that you you wanted to 
I mean, all my whole thing was about play, being a professional football player, and it was winning was was the, was one of the other major things. As uh, in winning things, going to Wembley, winning the FA Cup, even as a, a lad growing up in Scotland, the FA Cup, as well as the, the Scottish Cup and the Scottish Premier League, the FA Cup was a special thing to go there, play at Wembley, and then play in the replay and win the, the FA Cup. It gives you that kind of boost. It gives that boost to think, well, and a, and a kind of appetite. I mean, the manager had had a huge appetite for it, which is clear with the, the massive success he's had as a manager, both in England and in Scotland. But yeah, going and then winning a game like that, a game that nobody expected us really to win, uh, and I would include that was the, even the most um, passionate and optimistic of United fan. Uh, it did just get that thing that well, let's just try and keep winning things, and and Fergie was the same thing every day. I mean every. First day pre-season every year, every year that I was a player, it was he would come into the dressing room in the morning and say, forget about last year, that's history. Right, he said, uh, who's willing to climb back up to the top of the mountain? Because I can tell you this, I am. And if any of you in here don't fancy it, just come and let me know. And we'll part ways. And they'd walk out. And to me, that was the... Thing about you know well yeah that's that's correct yeah but uh, the wonderful thing about that there's so many fantastic memories about the whole the whole the whole, the whole journey th from the, the first game all the way through to the to the final whistle. The great Barca team. They, they well, they were, I mean, I, I I didn't realise actually. You know, I looked at the teams before we came on again, and I, I they were better than I actually thought when I was looking at the players. That played, you know, but uh, won the European um, Cup a year later. They won, uh, I know, won uh, at Wembley, yeah. So, so Eusebio, um, who played in the game, he told me that they'd knocked Juventus out in the, the semi final. And he said, for the final, we were missing Zubi Zaretta and Moore and Histro. Ronald was not fully fit. Uh, it was our third year under Cruyff, and we just won the league for the first time in years at Barcelona. That season, we played our best football of any of Cruyff's teams. Maybe it was a bad thing because we already knew we would be in the European Cup the following season. I thought that was quite interesting. But I didn't think they'd won the league by then. Yeah, they won the league. We didn't play well in Rotterdam and Manchester was superior. We were used to dominating teams and having control of our rivals. We couldn't do that against Manchester. I love it how it calls United Manchester. Well, they're all misinformed when it comes to that, though, isn't it? But it's, um, it's, a, it's a very fine accolade. So after the final whistle and the trophy presentation, you all go par back into the dressing room, no doubt. And um, apparently you got hauled out as uh, part of the random drug testing. Uh... Yeah, so you, so you get, it's brilliant. You get that thing. I've, I've blagged my way into hopefully lots of photographs and the celebrations, full of it, feeling very, very happy to, to get to that thing. Uh, and we've won the Cup Runners' Cup. Brilliant feeling. We get in the dress room and you want to celebrate and you want to be with your teammates and the staff. And, and it's immediate. They come straight in the dress room and say uh, two numbers. And it was like, ah, fuck. It was me and Mick Phelan. And you've got to go right away. <clears throat> so you have to leave. So we're in the dress room for a minute or so. And we we're, we're taken to... Uh, Cubby hole underneath the stand somewhere, which is a designated drug room, and we go in there uh, and 
um, there was there was um, I know there was plenty of things to drink. Well, certainly there was plenty of ice cold, ice cold beer or lager. I think it was. Um, it was who sponsored it. Was it Carlsberg then? Was it Covenant's Cup sponsor? UEFA? I don't know. Anyway, it was there was plenty of beer, and Mick and I thought, well, we'll just make the most of it. You know that we'll celebrate with just the two of us. And then the two Barcelona players came in, clearly, um, you know, pissed off that they'd lost the game. Um, and I um, thought it would be a, an idea that to try to, to... I didn't speak any... I didn't speak English, or not very much. And I had done... Um, I had done a bit of... Well, I'd done... I think I got a... I got a B for O-level Spanish at school. So I thought, I'll just try and knock some chat out of them, you know, while we're here, it's this kind of surreal scenario, you know, you've got two really happy guys and two guys that feel like shit, can't wait to get out. And uh, I'm trying to talk to them in my wee bit of Spanish to Catalonians who don't tend to like Spanish speakers. So I think that looking back, they, they probably thought I was taking the piss, you know, here's this guy that, you know, was rubbing it in. Not only have they won the game, and maybe they thought we were fortunate or whatever. And uh, I'm, I'm attempting to, you know, whatever it is, talk to them or take the piss out of them. And well, you could quite, you could say you're quite literally Spanish, taking the piss you know? if you were uh, providing this well, so. I know, and it was like, and no wonder they were thinking, well, they weren't, they weren't best pleased. They didn't look very happy when I just gave up. You know, I just thought they were, um, they were poor losers, but I think maybe they were more thought I was at it. Um I was I managed to um produce a sample uh, and then you you have to leave. So I, I was escorted back to the um back to the dressing room where most of the lads were had been showered and changed. Uh so I went into the shower and I suppose even part of that and I, part of the thing is, is the, the joy of showering together after a win like that, you know, and I'd missed that as well. <laughs> but I heard you didn't miss out on the celebration because you, um, you all piled back to Amsterdam. Didn't no, you? but the thing is as well, we, we, we got to the bit and they were going, right, come on, we, need, we want to go. Like, we need to wait for Mick. No, we're not waiting for him. There was, a, there was nobody, like, it's supposed to be a team with showing a great effort all the way through, a magnificent team effort to win the game and we weren't going to wait for him. And we didn't, we didn't, we just, we left them. <laughs> So he was still trying to uh, produce a sample while you, you cleared up. Yeah. yeah. You left even in a cupboard, yeah. swigging cans of Carlsberg, desperately trying to fill a, fill a yeah. urine sample. Yeah. And what happened? Because you headed yeah. back to Amsterdam, didn't you? I mean, did he catch you up? He, he just appeared at the he just appeared at the party with his, I don't remember, we had still his kit on, I think. I think he still his kit on. <laughs> he must have got the train. Didn't have those two Barcelona <laughs> guys with him, did he? <laughs> Do you want to go to your party? <laughs> Bring some of those cans for you. We're going to your party. I mean, I assume it was a pretty raucous night when you got back to Amsterdam. Uh, it was, I think that, that because there was no, I think the again thing that was was great that, that that we had the whole hotel and we had the function room and the function was in there and it had been where. I, I, it been. It was great. It was a great night. Um, uh, it was a great night and morning, and great next day. 
but uh, yeah, the party was was pretty raucous. Yeah. So, so, so thirty years on, I mean, it's you know, it's now three decades on. Where would you say that ranked in your achievements at United? Seeing as there've been so many, I mean, because it was such a prominent one, is it does it hold a special place in your heart, or is it just a, one of many? I think it was the best party. Uh, not, that's all not, that matters. <laughs> I'll rephrase yeah, that question. Was it, it the best, it was was it the best <laughs> celebration you've had in uh, of your? It was the best party. Yeah, the best post match party. Not, yeah. You're not willing to yeah. divulge any more information. Well, there was. I mean, it was just great. Eh? I mean, the, the 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 standout, the standout for me was was the whole the whole. Um, like it's, you know, it was a great time for Manchester music. So. The theme for me, the theme song for me all through the cut when I was cut was Sit Down. Yeah, it was. It was, wasn't it? Yeah, I can recall that being uh, the anthem. Of so that I was, uh, I think I got that played at least twice. I think we were, um, yeah, and it was just that, just jumping around, getting just a really joyous experience, you know? Yeah. And the, the terrorist chant at the time was the the from the life of Brian, was it not? Um always look on the bright side of life. Yeah, it could have been that as well, yeah, which is uh, another one of my favourites, yeah. Very apt, from, eh? uh, a wonderful film. Yeah, no, and then great you... party. I mean they, they don't like I mean they, they did have a one little thing where I had, again I kind of put my foot in it with uh, Mick Hucknell managed to blag his way into the party. Uh I don't know how he managed. I think I think Neil Webb maybe I got Mick, him in. Mick Feeden probably he wasn't, he wasn't part of the. Uh, no, well, no, I think that I think it was Webby. I'm pretty sure I think it was Webby anyway. I had a chat with Mick where I, where I was sort of saying to him I thought his music was um, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and he you was telling me that I was saying I really I think. I, I wasn't drunk at all. I was just like, that's what, that's like what that I mean. Time, at that point, I wasn't. Yeah, and I, I was like, uh, you know, reeling off all these bands that I liked: Mondays, Roses, um, James, Pogues. I really like the Pogues. I think they're wonderful. And he was saying, "Oh, well, we've just done the best music we've ever done. It's um, it's absolutely was incredible." Was that the time of the Stars album? And I said, "I, I said, well." It's pro- that'll probably be shit as well, you know. If you've seen that, you've, you've had your day in the sun, it was good, it was not a bad one, but I think you know, you're, you're fading into oblivion now. That was my and they bring, bring out an album that sells <laughs> anyway, just, copies. Yeah, two weeks later, uh, it, it came out, uh, stars. Uh, fortunately for me, I didn't, I didn't bump into Mick for a number of years, and I had the good grace to uh, not mention it or he'd, he'd forgotten. Uh, but I had I'd never forgotten that, that I was, you know, I was like saying, ah, that'll probably be garbage as well. Stars. He only got, I mean, he only, he only bought a vineyard or something like that. I mean, who would, who would deny a man a vineyard in France, you know? He was, he was good, he was good company, but I was, I was probably rude. I can't believe it for one minute. Or maybe it was banter, I don't really know. But I mean he didn't he didn't hit me, so Well look, he blagged into the party. I mean if you blag into a party then you, you, you deserve to be abused in my book. So uh you know, I think I'm sure he'll forgive you. I thought I was being humorous. <laughs> sure he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh he was alright, because he, he didn't get up and stomp off or anything like that and drop his beer. Yeah. Or his champagne, I think it was probably 
it's probably pushing off some of the champagne that he, he wasn't expecting was to have. Champagne that you and Robbo were drinking all night, was it? Uh, champagne was more of a breakfast. Um, champagne was breakfast thing. Because I went to bed at, um, I went to, I don't know what time it was. It was like, last man, there was just two or three of us, me and my mate Chris, maybe Robo as well, five in the morning or something. And um, for some bizarre reason, as, were, if, as I was going past reception, I asked to get a, maybe six in the morning, I got asked to get an alarm call at seven. And uh, I went into my room. Had a, had a sleep. Well, the phone rang and I'm like, what's going on here with this? Yes, your alarm call, sir. Yeah, yeah, time's at seven. I go, what am I doing? What am I getting an alarm call for? We weren't leaving till midday. I got an alarm call for seven. Oh, I just get up. And um, I went and I went knocked, my, knocked my guest up. Knocked up. Uh, so we're we all for breakfast. Yeah, we're we'll going to get out for breakfast. And uh, Robo came down and he uh, said, uh, right, um, called the waiter over and said, um, uh, a bottle of champagne and some orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was us. That was us. Everybody came down then. I think the next person down was Matt Edwards, actually. And uh, uh, Robo, I think he joined us for a, for a box of us for breakfast. And then everyone came down. Uh, I think Robo saw that's a green light to order everyone who came down a bottle of champagne to their uh, to their table. So everybody had, well, nearly everyone had box fizz for, for their breakfast. And then it was, uh, yeah, so that was, uh, that was another sort of kind of stopped and then with an hour off and then uh, re- regained some momentum. I made a good laugh and carry on at breakfast. And you had to go all the way back to a screaming baby when you got home, eh? <laughs> I don't remember Liam screaming very <laughs> Just much, you. you know, at all. Mugglass Mailbag Mugglass Mailbag Mugglass Mailbag Right, it's mailbag time again. So, uh, Matthew, can you grab your sack, please, and give it a shake and see what drops out? I will indeed. Uh, there you go. And... What we've got here, we've got a question from Rob Hill, and he says, I love watching Sparky back into defenders, holding the ball up and bringing people into play. Strong, brilliant on the volley and a big game player. But do you think his brand of forward play would survive the way the game is refereed now? I do think that because he, he wasn't... Um, he, anything that he was doing in those situations when he was holding the ball up, and I very rarely was that a foul... He was just so uh, he was just so strong and powerful that he, in low center of gravity that um, you couldn't shift him. Now he probably would have got into some trouble with some of these um, these tackles, uh, but they're um, they're are not um, are not looked upon as uh, uh, very positive nowadays. But I, I would I don't see. Yeah, I think it would be. Uh, yeah. I think it would be. I mean, the, the- the first player Easily, that comes to yeah. mind, I know he's not around now, but I mean, you think someone like Drogba was was a similar kind of physical forward, wasn't he? And he, yeah, he was in the he yeah. played in the modern game. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I suppose it there's still a there's still a place for it, and um, you know, seeing as defenders are clamped down upon now, as we've spoken before about how defenders can't whack people from behind, there 
No, I think it might even have been. I think it might even easier for him to because they're not clambering all over the top of him. They're not scraping down the back of his legs. They're not standing on his toes. I think it would have been even easier for him nowadays because he's he, he couldn't he couldn't really get around them. He couldn't really get over them. And you would you it's very difficult to knock him down. You know. Okay, so we got one from Dan Lefondre, and he says. Robbo suggested this was probably his greatest game. Would you agree? Now, this kind of goes hand in hand with a question from, we've got from our old friend Dave McLaughlin, um, Cumbrian Dave, as you know him. And he says, who would your man of, ma- man of the match have been uh, for United that night? So, I mean, would, would Robson been your pick or would it have been somebody else? I don't, I wouldn't say that to my recollection that there was an outstanding player. I think there was an outstanding team performance. Um, Fergie used to say that, you know, in, in big games, if 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 six or seven of you can put in an eight eight out of ten performance, he was confident you would win the game. If all of you can do that, or even some can get to nine or potentially ten, maybe in some games that some players did, then then he thought they would win comfortably. And I think that that everybody that played. Was uh, was at least was at least an eight. Uh, yeah, there may be some players that's, that they were up there with uh, with nines. I think so. I think that was a, an overall team performance. Robo played well. Yeah, but I think everybody could could say that the you know in games it's even big games sometimes you have someone who's who's off form. Uh, I don't I don't think anybody was below an eight in that game. And he, maybe it was, maybe it was a, the overall the yeah, most influential player for well, us. Very diplomatic answer, I think you can uh, class that one as. Um, and finally, Budgie, um, he says, did you ever get hit in training with one of those famous Clayton Blackmore rocket free kicks? Now, Clayton scored a couple in this in this, uh, <laughs> in this this run, didn't he? I think famously Montpellier he scored one from about 35 yards that, that, that snuck in. But I mean, he was, he was known for having a, a bit of a, a rocket shot. Yeah, Clayton it was a, a very good striker of the ball and Clayton will be able to tell you every single goal that he scored in training. And when I meet Clayton, he'll be talking, talking to me and saying, remember that one I did? The, remember that one, you know? Remember I bent I bent that one at the top corner at the, at, the, uh, at Littleton Road? Remember it was we were playing practice match Jazza? Or I bet that one past Jazza, and I'm like, "Who are you talking about? Who's Jazza? Who's, who's this Jazza person you're on about?" It was Jim Layton. He's talking about scoring a goal in training. Was Jim Jim Layton, and now it was a it was a it was a world day. It was amazing. That was one of the best I've ever scored. Clayton, yeah, it's training. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's still a goal, isn't it? No, Clayton, and he can remember more goals. He remembers all sorts of bizarre things uh, like that. So there's there's two things about Clayton. There's that that he'll always talk to you about um, uh, goals he scored in training, and he will always, within a very short period of time, have got the conversation on to golf and his golf because he's down and down now. If you look at his social media stuff. Uh, before ex-professional football player, it has professional golfer. Yeah, is he that good? Is he that handy? Is he a ter- Yeah, he uh, he's good. Yeah, but he's, he's he's 
been in the qualifiers for the Senior Open a few the last few years, or certainly before 2018, 2019, and he, he got he got quite close to, to qualifying for the. I hope you told him that his shots he hits down the range don't count as uh, you know, like uh, you can't quite you can't count those as. I know that he can't. He'll remember all of them. He'll remember all of them as well. Whether there was a bit of fade on that or a bit of a draw on it, he'll he'll know all of that. Golf clubs, golf balls. You know, he's 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 not the. He's uh, I've roomed with Clayton several times, and he's he, despite those uh, topics of conversation, he, he's not the worst. I'm. I'm intrigued to ask who is, but you don't. That's not technically a mailbag question, but it's a supplementary question. No, I'd have to wait for that one. Shall we wrap it up there then and put these memories away uh, for, in the box for another time? Brian and Matthew, pleasure as always. Thanks very much. Thank you both. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, and thanks again to Andy Mitten for his fantastic stories from Rotterdam 91. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Andy Mitten. If you want to say hello to us, we are at Brian McClare Pod. Uh, the mailbag is always open for questions using the hashtag AskChucky. Subscribe to Life with Brian wherever you get your podcasts, and any nice reviews you could give us would be much appreciated. Uh, thanks to you for listening, of course. Uh, we're having a great time doing this podcast, and we hope you feel the same way about being part of it. So um, take care until we see you next time. Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.